Oh, you can do better than that for Chris Sarandon. Let's hear it for Chris Sarandon, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, this is... We're center stage. I have played two parts in movies before. So <laughs> One or two. Little, yeah. A few mm. Princess Bride fans here, yeah? <laughs> Any of you uh, horror fans like me, like Fright Night? <laughs> huh? So we're going to jump right into it. We'll take some questions from the audience, too, because we are here for you guys. Chris is here for you guys. Absolutely. Uh, I like getting things rolling uh, with, a, with a different version of something that a lot of people will ask. Um, you know, what made you want to be an actor? What made, you know, where do, where does inspiration come from? What are your influences? That kind of thing. I'm, I'm more interested in whether you can pinpoint when you first recognized that you wanted to be a performer of some sort, whether it was acting, whether it was music, whether it was just whatever, can you, can you pinpoint that point in your life? Well, when I wanted to do it professionally, you know, is this a thing that I can do for a living? Uh, I guess it was my sophomore year in college. Uh, I, I didn't grow up thinking I, I have to be an actor, uh, as a lot of people that I actually know. My wife is that way. She, was, she knew from the moment she was born, I think. Uh, and, and it's obvious for uh, the reason why. Um, I was in a, a kind of, not a spiral, I was working, I was doing a lot of stuff in college, just kind of, treading water. I was uh, uh, working a lot in uh, politics. I was coordinating weekends. I was doing this. I was doing that. I was being popular. A and, and then I took an acting class. Uh, and the professor in the acting class said, you know, you're pretty good at this. Do you want to be in one of the workshop productions we're doing? It's just a little, you know, thing. You, you, it, it'll take you a couple hours a week. And you get to wear a toga. So, of course, that was the, that was the, the clincher. And uh, <laughs> it was a production of Julius Caesar, and I was, I can't remember, Flavius or Flavius. Yeah, you were anyway. one of the senators. Right, right. So, somebody exactly. with, a, with, a, with a knife. <laughs> Sorry, I'm <clears throat> just getting over cold. And um, <clears throat> I did that, and, and then he said, do you want to do another show? We're doing a <clears throat> production of a play called Tartuffe. Tartuffe, a great Moliere piece. <clears throat> yeah, about, uh, and, uh, and I said, oh, gee, I don't have time. I'm doing leadership conference. I'm doing this and that and the other. And he said, well, no, but I want you to play Tartuffe. And I said, oh, I don't know. I, 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 I've got so much to do. And he said, well, you know who's playing uh, Elmire is uh, the current Miss West Virginia. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I did it. Oh, and I also got to wear a fake nose and a mole. Which every actor, you know, when you're a sophomore in college, that, that's the sort of end-all, be-all, because you get to be somebody else. And that was it. That was it. I dropped everything, literally. I moved out of, I was in a fraternity, and I was living in the fraternity house. I moved out of the fraternity house. I was being touted for student body president, like, the next year. I, I told them to go. I won't tell them what I told them. But anyway. <laughs> uh, and... And I moved in with a, a friend of mine who had a grandmother who had an extra room in her apartment. And I moved in with her and we cooked together. It was really great, actually. She was a wonderful, wonderful uh, older woman. Old lady, actually. Uh, <laughs> what I am now. Not an old lady, I'm an old man. Uh, and, um, 
and I dedicated myself completely. I was in every production I could be in. I was in um, the music. I was the music man in the music man. I was really cool. It was one of the best th times of my life. Trouble with a capital T and that yeah. rhymes with P, P and that and stands, for pool. stands for pool. That's right. <laughs> and that was it from then on. I, my, then my junior and senior year, I was in as many places I could be in. And then I went to graduate school uh, and got a master's degree in performing arts. Uh, and then I went on tour with a company that the school sponsored, and I worked in their summer theater. And then I moved to, I got a job right away out of college, working in, in a theater in New Haven, Connecticut, called the Longworth Theater. And then uh, I got an agent immediately and moved to New York, and then I got a soap opera. I was in The Guiding Light for a while. Anybody Guiding Light fans? Yeah. Oh, it's a story. Uh, I, I was... Um, uh, it was my first job. This was in 19... <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, and uh, I was making something like $275 a week, which then paid my rent. Uh, and I had an apartment on the Upper West Side of New York, now which is, you know, you can't get an apartment for less than two or $3,000 a month for a, for a studio apartment. Yeah, if you, if you owned one of those, you could sell it and retire right. three times over. Right, and I, and I was, and, and uh, that apartment cost $275 a month, so my rent was, you know, essentially what I was working for. Uh, and I was the guy who, <laughs> who the lead actor would always come into the, I was a doctor. My name was, I remember my name, Dr. Tom Halverson. And Dr. Halverson was the guy who always was scrubbing when everybody, when all the lead actors walked in, right? And I'd, be, I'd go, good morning, doctor. And they'd go, oh, good, good morning, Dr. Halverson. That was it. For like six months, that's all I did, was say, good morning, doctor, and scrub my hands. Uh, and then I got a Broadway show, um, the that, original that... production of The Rothschilds, which was my first, first Broadway show. And went on tour with that. We did, played out of town for a while. Then we came into Broadway, and I was on, in the Broadway show for like nine months. Then I got another Broadway show, another, um, another musical. Um, and uh, I'm blessed, I'll tell you. And my first movie was Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, I mean, you could do worse than one of the great cinema classics. So, I, I, you know, I, a lot of... Young people particularly will come up to me and say, what's the secret? What do you do? And I say, a lot of it is luck. You know, I mean, you, there are a lot of people who are talented. There are a lot of actors out there who are unsung uh, or whose careers were derailed by some sort of personal tragedy or some difficulty in their lives. Uh, I was really, I've been blessed. Well, to go directly off of Dog Day That was a long answer. No, it was, it was a perfect answer because it actually it led into something that, that I like talking to you about. I brought up to you in the past uh, an actor whose, whose career was tragically shorter than it should have been, John Cazale, yeah. who you worked with on that movie, who, who was in some of the greatest of the great movies. Anybody familiar with who John Cazale is? He was Fredo in, in the Godfather movies. That's probably what you most know, people know him from. I'm but smart, not like they say. That, yeah. You know, that guy. You know, he, he, was in, he was in The Godfather movies. <laughs> he was in The Conversation. He was in Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. You know, what, what, was, what was working with him like? Was he, was he a guy like yourself who was coming up and, and just hitting lucky breaks and actually, doing amazing work? Actually, I worked with John before Dog Day Afternoon. You did. We did a play together at the Long Wharf. He was in the company with me at the Long Wharf Theater, and we did a bunch of plays together. So I knew John really well. 
What, what was, what, I mean, what was he like? Was he, was he, 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 was, he was one of those people, I'm sure you all, all have a friend like this, who's really smart and quiet and very funny and eccentric, very eccentric as well. Uh, he sort of marched to his own drummer, but, but, but not in the sense of his being an oddball. He was just, you know, I mean, you'd have to have known him. Was John. A sort of, you know, uh, why doesn't this guy do what everybody else is doing? Well, why should he do what everybody when else he is doing? Does He's what just he does his own so guy. Brilliantly, exactly. Now, you mentioned you've, you've got a, a past uh, in musicals. Again, something that I've, I've mentioned to you in the past when we've been on these stages. You were in the, uh, you, were, you were a replacement in the first Broadway musical that I saw. First time I went to New York, you, you were in The Light in the Piazza. Ah. One of the most musical theater fans. Yes, there should be one or a, a few dozen of you in here. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was that kind of elevated feeling the first time you see one of those kinds of shows, but especially that it was that show, it was, it was that much more magical and, and crazy for me. What was it like jumping into the cast of this incredibly popular, incredibly already beloved show? Was it a show that you had already seen, or were you seeing it for the first time when you were going in? I, I saw it for the first time when I, just before I auditioned. I saw, went, went and saw it because I wanted to know what I was in for, and um, I had, my, my wife and I were sort of social friends with a musical director, mm -hmm. and he had been at our house playing games. We were playing charades one night, and he brought Adam Gettle with him. Adam Gettle wrote the score and the lyrics to Light in the Piazza. Light in the Piazza, is a, well, it's a wonderful, <clears throat> it's an amazing piece. It's based on a short novel uh, about a woman from North Carolina who takes her daughter, who is in her 20s, but who had an accident when she was young, and her mental age is 13, and she'll never get older than 13 years old. But she looks like she's, she's a 26-year-old, incredibly beautiful young woman, and she falls in love with a young Italian man when she and her mother are in Italy together. And the conundrum of the piece is about what does the mother do? Because she'll always be 13 for her entire life. And it's, it, it's, it's both tragic on the one hand, but at the same time, the mother ultimately makes the decision she has to be, we have to let her be happy. And she marries the boy, uh, but the, what happens in between is very wrought. And it, it's a, it's a uh, the first time I saw it, I wept for like 10 minutes. And then every time I would go back after I was cast, to just so I could watch the blocking and see what was going on, I cried every time, every time. It was it's such a moving piece. If you ever get a chance to see a touring company of it, it's just it's spectacular. As you were coming up, you were you were working with some some uh, very well established directors, uh, very well established actors. Did you, were you ever intimidated by the fact that you know you were in Dog Day Afternoon with Pacino and he was already a big deal at that point, or was it just you know uh, another show, another uh, you know another traveling carnival to go to? Well, you always have a sense when you're working on something and you're working with really good people. <laughs> It's like playing sports. You know, you want your game to be equal to the, the game that the other people are playing because you don't want to feel like you're a putz. Uh, <laughs> and, <clears throat> and that was my first movie, but I knew both Sidney Lumet because my ex-wife had done a movie with him, and I knew Al Pacino because he was, at the time, ha had been going out with a woman that I was in a Broadway show with. So I knew them both kind of, you know, hi, how you doing? We'd sit, talk, but... So when I walked in the room, I wasn't like, oh, my God, it's Sidney Lumet and Al Pacino. Um, at Sydney, we had dinner three weeks ago. <clears throat> yeah, sort of. Uh, <laughs> um, 
and at the same time, if you're if you are if you're involved in a character and you're developing a character for an audition, say, that's what you're thinking about. <laughs> you're not thinking about who you're auditioning for. You're thinking about what's my objective? What am I doing here? What's the scene about? Who are these people in this scene? Um, and and so it helps. Uh, although I had somebody give me advice a long time ago. If you're nervous when you go in the room, just imagine the people that you're auditioning for are sitting on a toilet. Not, not in their underwear, on a toilet. No, on a toilet. <clears throat> it, it sort of reduces us all to the same level in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody, you know, anyway. <laughs> now, there, there, there are a number of people who, who do these conventions who, you know, are, are really well known for a particular cult favorite, uh, fan favorite. You've got, you've got a laundry list of these things. Uh, I, I'd love to start off with Fright Night by asking if you, were, if you were a fan of genre cinema of that type when you were younger, or if this, was, if this was a departure, I mean, you were doing Tartuffe and you were doing some classical theater kind of stuff. I was, uh, let's put it this way, I've always been a fan of, of great Hollywood films and great international movies. So I was a fan of the original Dracula films, the Bela Lugosi movies. Uh, the Boris Karloff, the, the Frankenstein movies, The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, I was also um, a fan of the uh, original, original uh, vampire movie Nosferatu, which is a great <laughs> movie. Uh, and so, and, and everybody, it's interesting because if you guys are familiar with Tom Holland, who direct, I mean, who wrote and directed Fright Night, also wrote and directed Child's Play, the original Chucky movie. Uh, Tom is a, is, is a lover of the genre of horror films and great, the, the great tradition of horror movies that is going back. And at the time that Tom wrote Fright Night, he wrote it in a way as a reaction to what was going on in the genre at that time, which was that vampire movies were being made fun of. Love at First Bite was made. Uh, there were probably a couple of others that were made in, in which the, the movie was winking at the audience and going, I know, this is kind of stupid, but we're, we're kind of sending it up. And Tom was convinced that there was a way of making a movie that would appeal to a modern audience and, and, and have fun with the genre without making fun of it. And that's what he set out to do. So, so that when I read the script, and at the time I had been doing a lot of stuff for uh, specials on television. I did uh, uh, Tale of Two Cities, and I played the two guys, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay, and I played Thomas Wolfe in, in um, You Can't Go Home Again, and I played Jesus in uh, The Day Christ Died, and I thought, you know, I'm a very important actor. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I've, you know, I'm a guy who really is, I'm in the pantheon of important actors now. Um, and I do, you know, great work. And I got a script called Fright Night. And I said, oh, I can't do a movie called Fright Night. I'm a very special actor. Uh, and uh, and, and my, my agent said, just read it, because they want to make you an offer. And that doesn't happen very often, at least at that point in my career, I was getting offers for television, but I wasn't much for films. I was getting offers for movies. Anyway, so, so I sat down and I started reading the script and I went, holy, this is amazing. Uh, if, if any of you are students of, 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 of structure, 
This is one of the most brilliantly structured movies, first of all. It's, it's beautifully laid out. Um, the characters are, are fully realized. Each character is very specific. The plot really carries you along. You don't know whether to laugh or cry half the time. It's funny. And it also works as a movie. So I said, I, I got to meet the guy who wants to make this movie. I have to meet him at least. So I went to, they flew me out to L.A. and I met with him and Herbert Jaffe, the producer. And I sat down and Tom Holland described every shot of the movie. He started with the opening shot and he said, and then this is what happens and then we pan to this and then the, the crane comes up and this happens. And when he finished, I said, where? Where do I sign? This is, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. And, and the experience was very, very much borne out by my initial impression of Tom, because it was a great experience. Now, I'm not one of these people who, who thinks that remakes in and of themselves are sacrilegious or disrespectful of the original work. I think what you point to about the beauty of the structure of the plot, <clears throat> of the staging, of, of all of it, of, of what went into the original Fright Night, is one of the reasons that I see a good remake of a movie like Fright Night being like the revival of a classic play. Mm. It's a beautiful piece of work. Uh, you know, how, how, how do you feel about, uh, about the, the new Fright Night? Did you see it right when it came out? I, Have you checked it out I since? I was in it. You were in it. Yeah, for you're, like 30 well, seconds. Well, I mean, you were in it, but I'm yeah. saying, did you, did you see this? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I saw it. I thought they did a nice job. <laughs> Diplomatic answer. Yeah, Somebody no, always asks. I, I'm, not being, and I'm not being damning with faint praise. I'm not. I thought it was a good movie. I thought they did a really nice job. But there's nothing like the original. Yeah, you can't capture yeah. lightning in a bottle a second time. Yeah. Somebody always asks. So I figured, you know, ask yeah. you first. But, and by the way, they were all huge fans of the original. Colin Farrell couldn't have been nicer. Any of them have stuff me. for you to sign? Colin, like, unroll a poster? Uh, actually, come on, man. He brought sign me, it for me. He brought me presents the first day of my shooting. I was there for like two days, and go. he brought me a, like a ridiculously expensive bottle of wine and, and a, a, a copy of the Carl Dreyer Vampire. Um, and he, he was very nervous, actually, because he grew up watching the movie. He was a big, big fan of the movie when he was a kid. <sighs> Nerd. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so you, it was a great experience. And Craig Gillespie, who directed it, also directed a movie called I, Tonya, which was just yeah. you know, nominated for a bunch of awards. Lovely guy. Australian. Now, you, you mentioned uh, there being that kind of mixture of everything. Laughing, crying, you know, horror, fun, and everything. There's a little bit of all those kinds of ingredients also in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. Now, how did this come to you? Was this a, hey, mm. here it is, it's Tim Burton, he's doing a thing? What, what was it? I auditioned. You auditioned for it? Yeah. I did a voiceover audition for it. That was it. Uh, Danny Elfman had already done the singing, so I, they played the, the soundtrack for all the people who were auditioning. I, I, I was not alone. And then everybody, you know, you walked in and you did red line, lines of jacks. And that was it. And I found out, I think, a couple of days later that I'd gotten the role. Now, when you were laying down the audio track for this <laughs> thing, did you, did you have much in terms of visual reference for oh, what the absolutely. style of everything was? Were absolutely. you looking at everything as you were going? <clears throat> they shot it in San Francisco. Um, at a big sort of warehouse kind of building there. Uh, and there were like four sound stages going uh, at one time. And when I say sound stages, I mean literally there'd be a, a room about the si half the size of this table that was the set for that day. That was Jack's, you know, was, was Halloween Town. Uh, and there'd be another set that was uh, the professor's house. There'd be another set that was uh, Jack's place. Uh, but they were all little tiny places, <laughs> right? Um, 
And, uh, and also the entire movie was storyboarded in the entryway to the, to the studio. So you could, you know, you knew basically visually what was going on in the scenes. And then I just went in with Henry Selleck, the director, and I recorded, you'd record like three or four scenes at a time. Then they'd animate the scenes. And it's such an exhausting process. They, they ended up with something like 11 seconds of usable film a week. It, made, it took three years to make. Yeah, I mean, it's literally, you know, there's, there, there were 400 jackheads. And each one had a different expression. Sometimes, you know, they were sort of jack... And each one was a frame. So they'd shoot a frame, then they'd change the heads, then they'd shoot another frame, take, change the heads. If Jack's hands were moving, they'd move the hand a little bit or they'd move a finger. It was, I, I, I'm still filled with admiration for that stop-action uh, animation process. It's just extraordinary. Now, being on a, every director's set is different. It's kind of like going to a different camp. You know, you're there for a few weeks, you're there for a limited amount of time, and people have different ways of, of running things. You know, same with theater directors. Uh, as a person, as a, as a director, what was Henry Selleck like? Uh, it, it, was he really into showing you every little piece of, of, uh, of how the sausage is made, the way that Tom Holland did on Fright Night? Was he, what was most important to him as a director in terms of working with you? Uh, what's most important, I think, with most animation directors is that you give them some variety. You give them choices so that when you're doing a scene, for instance, you know, the scenes that I'd be doing weren't terribly long scenes. They wouldn't be four, five, six-page scenes. They'd be, you know, sometimes just a couple of lines. But in, when you're recording, Henry would say, give me such and such and so and so. And then you'd, he'd say, but do, do three straight. So you'd do the lines, say, three straight times, but you'd do it differently each time. So that way he'd have choices of which one to use. Or if he wanted another, say, three, three more, you'd do three more or ten more or whatever. And each line from each scene was like that. It's, again, kind of an exhausting process as well. It's piece by piece by piece. And for a character that's become so iconic, where at first it was little collectibles and now there are bed sheets and oh, there, you can dress yourself God. head to toe and underneath layers uh, in right. everything Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah. uh, this, is, this is a character that people deeply love you for. These years later, is is the voice something that you can just summon at, a, at the drop of a hat, or is it something that you need reference for? Do people ask you to do the voice? People of ask Skellington? me all the time, and I, I'm I can't do it for people. Disney does not allow me to do it so for people. You're saying, you're saying this is your work, and it takes effort. Is, that's right. Well, it's not just that, but it's also that they it's it's a copyrighted thing. Yeah. That is, I do ringtones. I do. Um, the video games. Alarm clocks, probably. <clears throat> my, that's probably my voice on the alarm clock. Whatever you hear, Jack, that's me. And so uh, it's a proprietary thing, and so I can't just. I hear they have one or two lawyers, right? Up. Yeah. Disney? Right. Yeah. Yeah. A few. <laughs> uh, um, so that's that. Yeah. Now, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't take us to the Princess Bride before I turned it over to our lovely audience. Uh, they. They will keep releasing new anniversary editions of this DVD until the end of time. Until the 12th of never. Yeah. <laughs> right. When, when you guys were on the set making this movie, uh, again, this is something that I could ask you about any of these movies that you've been in that people love so dearly. Was there the feeling that, that, that this was a lightning in the bottle kind of thing that, that was very unique, that was 
that had the potential of exploding into the kind of, uh, you know, obsessed fandom that, that it's blown up into? You know, when you're making a movie, you don't ever, unless it's, it's like if you, if you were making the second Godfather movie, I think you probably had a feeling, oh, well, this one's probably going to be... I think, I think yeah. we're in good shape. Yeah, exactly. This Don Corleone guy's going somewhere. Right, right. But, but, you know, with a movie like this that was so totally different from anything that's really ever been done when you think about it, um, uh, something that's an amalgam of so many different genres uh, and that it's played so... It's played in a way tongue-in-cheek, but it's, it's actually similar to what I said about Fright Night in that... You, may, you have fun with the genres, but you don't make fun of them. Um, and there's a tone that's very specific that runs through the whole movie. And a lot of that has to do with the cast. Um, because Rob knew the tone that he wanted. He knew the kind of movie he wanted to make. And he knew what would make it work and what wouldn't make it work. Um, and so I, we were all on the same page in, in the sense that we were working in the same way together. We were having a great time and we were laughing a lot. Um, especially, uh, Mandy Patinkin says, says that he, uh, they practiced the sword fight and I'm sure, Carrie always, if Carrie, I don't know if Carrie's doing a Q&A, but. Yeah, I uh, think his is on Sunday at four o'clock in room 106. <laughs> I was going over the schedule oh, well, before we okay. came down here. That's the, uh, <laughs> but Carrie, I don't have that good you know, of memory. Any, any of you who've read Carrie's book, you know how much they worked on that, that duel. They practiced and they practiced. Every time we were shooting, whenever they weren't on the set, he and Mandy were off sword fighting, right? With, with the legendary sword master, mm-hmm. sword masters Bob Anderson, yep. Yep. the king. And um, the only time, and, and Mandy said, I've never, I was never injured in any of the sword fighting or practicing. The only time I injured myself was laughing during the Miracle Max scene. <laughs> he, he, he threw a rib out or something. I don't know what he did. Um, and every scene wasn't necessarily like that uh, because Billy Crystal improvised a lot of that. But uh, the rest of the script was the script. It was not changed at all. It was basically that's what we did. We did that script, and uh, we had a great time. It was a wonderful shoot. Well, because I'm, I'm one of the, I think, many people in this room who own seven anniversary editions of this thing on DVD, right. uh, you know, I've seen many interviews with you. I've seen you answer many of the same questions a lot of times. Something that I think is unique to conventions is when you're on the set, there are people that you're shooting with, there are people that you're around uh, frequently, that you become friends with. Uh, you know, people will ask you, oh, what are some of your favorite stories? Who, who'd you become friends with? Is there anybody in the cast that doing conventions, you know, Wally Shawn, Carrie, that you've become closer with, that you've become better friends with doing conventions than you had an opportunity to on the set? I would say, yeah, Ka- uh, uh, Carrie and Wally, definitely, because we've done a lot of these together, and we've just had a chance to spend more time then we and, and also we shot the movie a long time ago. People change. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily. I haven't changed necessarily for the better, but uh, but that carry always. Oh, he was a oh, terrible. He oh, was a terror oh, back then. Terror, yes. Uh, uh, but Carrie and I have definitely become closer, and and so have Wally and I. And actually, when the Fright Night people get together, we immediately sort of fall into the same old routine. We give each other a hard time. We go out to dinner together. We have a great time. Do you guys have questions for us? Oh, beautiful. I love being lazy and giving you my job. Let's go with this guy right here.
just I'll, I'll repeat questions so that those of you in the back can hear it. Favorite uh, moment working on Fright Night in the in the in the whole get up and you know actually making the movie. Favorite moments from that. I can tell you my least favorite moments <laughs> was, that, that, that was the makeup you, at the end of the movie, which took eight hours. So I'd come in at four o'clock in the morning, and at noon I'd go to work, and I'd work for another eight hours, and then I'd go home and sleep for eight hours, and then I'd come back and make up for eight hours, and then I—that's right, isn't it? Three times eight. Yeah, three times eight, 24. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Miss Linda Mood, in the third, fourth grade, fourth grade. Um, actually, the moments that I enjoyed the most were the moments that humanized Jerry, uh, because that was one of the things that Tom and I talked a lot about, uh, in that, you know, here's a person who, who's lived for hundreds of years, and what are his human qualities um, because he's been a you know he's been a vampire but he's also he started somewhere as a human being uh, and one of the moments I think was when he 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 grabs Charlie in the bedroom and he holds him up and he says I'm, 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 he gives him a chance you know if you just if you just forget about this then everything's going to be okay and Charlie refuses and and Jerry just says fool but but the fool has more to it than just you're an idiot. It's more about if I had a second chance, oh, what I would do. Um, and those are the moments as an actor that you you know you kind of live for. Um, that and the the evil Ed scene where he he takes evil Ed under his wing, so to speak, that may, many people see as homoerotic, which it may well be. I don't know if, if you see it that way, but it it it, it definitely is a is a it's a human moment of this lost kid being, being in a way, um, parented by Jerry, oddly enough. Um, and there are a few of those, you know. And, and, and also, the, the whole thing was very collaborative with Tom because any ideas that you had, Tom, if, if they were viable, he incorporated them. Uh, the fruit, Jerry eating fruit. Uh, well, because you know, we all did character histories, and I kept thinking, well, you know, I got 400 years of 500 years of history. What do I do? Uh, I'll look up bats, and I found out that 90% of the bats in the world are not vampire bats; they're fruit bats. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if somewhere genetically Jerry was a fruit, you know, had some fruit bat in him, <laughs> and. And I told Tom this, and he said, that's great. Let's, and so wherever we could, we worked it into the movie. <laughs> yeah. But that's the kind of creative uh, collaboration that, that's very rewarding for an actor. I'll never tell. Some secrets stay secrets. I don't know. That was a, to a Tom touch. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Back there in the back. Yep. Oh, right, right. No, actually, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have that conversation, but there were certainly lots of others. Roddy was an amazing man and somebody who, whose friendship I treasured throughout my life and his, which was uh, sadly cut short. Well, by, by reputation, he, he seems to have very much been the guy who calls people on their birthday, sends them a card. Oh, he was amazing. Wherever he was in the world, 
If he was traveling and if he was in Prague, you got a postcard from Prague on your birthday. And that's the way he was with all of his friends, too. He was an amazing guy. Next up, right there. Of what? Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, not having up to that point been a big Star Trek fan, it was not like intimidating or anything. Plus, there were some actors on the show that I'd worked with and knew. I knew Renee Bourgeois. Uh, I knew Armin Shimmerman and I were in a play together. So it was kind of not old home week, but, you know, and fun. Uh, a lot of fun because any kind of fantasy where you can sort of put yourself in a totally different kind of... Uh, uh, century, world, environment, uh, they're, they're fun. They're a lot of fun to do. Did you run into these guys that you knew from before, before they got into the makeup on the set, or did you run into them in the makeup and not know who you're talking to for, uh, the set, I, I, for a few both. seconds? Both. Yeah. yeah. I'd see them Oh, before, Armin, that's then, you under the yeah, nose right. and giant ears. Pretty hard to mistake Armin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right here, Lord and Savior. <clears throat> it's him. Yes. I was wondering if you enjoyed playing Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Having, having Jesus ask you if you enjoy playing Jesus. I Ladies mean, and gentlemen. What a, what a way to put somebody on the spot. It was, Good Lord. That was, a, <clears throat> that was actually a tough shoot. It was in, we shot it in Tunisia um, at a time when the government was very repressive. And also uh, the women in the company, the, not the uh, women in the cast, but the women who were working in the crew were constantly harassed uh, as being uh, infidels and you know horrible because they their dresses were too short and yeah yeah and I'm not saying it was, the movie was a bad experience I'm saying it was tough it was hard to watch that happening while you're shooting something and and have members of the cast or crew be very made very uncomfortable. Um, by, at the time, people who were probably fundamentalists. Uh, and, by the way, who are not really a true example of Islam. Um, but the, the role was a little intimidating, as I, I'm sure you can uh, <laughs> speak to. But, but the approach was interesting because we approached it from the standpoint of him being a man of his time, uh, in which he was a, a young Jewish man who was brought up in very strong, a very strong Jewish tradition. And I read a lot of books about what it was like, what Jewish life was like at the time. Uh, the repression, the, the, the occupation by the Roman armies in, in, in uh, that part of the world. Um, and it, so it was a really enlightening experience in a lot of ways, but tough. I wasn't expecting such a excellent response. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that was hard to keep a straight face. Yeah, <laughs> that was a tough one. Yeah, especially if you weren't totally expecting it. Yeah, yeah. right over here. Bad guy, oh, bad, bad guy, guy. Bad that was guy. an easy answer for you, Always. man. Always, always more fun because they're usually more. Uh, you know, they're more juicy, the villainous parts. The good guys' parts are usually dull. John, I've played a few good guys, and they're not very interesting. It's usually because they're not 
terribly well written. Every once in a while they are well written, but not often. I have a very personal Andre the Giant moment, uh, a family moment. You, you guys may know the story from Carrie's book, but um, when I went to make the movie, I had to go over to England. I had two small kids at the time, three and one and a half, or three and a half and two, somewhere in there. And, um, and so when I left, because we were shooting on location, and it wasn't really a great place for little kids. We were shooting in a you know, up in the Midlands of England, and, a, and we were all in the same hotel, and nothing to do, basically. So my family joined me later when we were shooting in England, in London, I mean. And so uh, I was explaining to my girls, Daddy's going away, and I'm going to make a movie about a princess. Nothing. And, and there's a bride. She's a bride. Nothing. Just little girls, right? And then there's a, let's see, there's a guy who's a sword fighter, and there's a pirate... Nothing. And then there's a giant. A giant, Daddy? There's a giant in the movie? Really? What's the giant like? Is he big? Is he as big as a house? Is he as big as a... Well, they were just completely cuckoo over the fact that there was a giant in the movie. And I would call home, you know, as often as I could. And every time I would call home and I'd talk to the kids, I'd say, Hi, hi, it's Daddy. I miss you. Hi, Daddy. How's the giant? How big is he? Is he as big as a house? Is he as big as a car? Um, when do you see him, Daddy? Do you play with him all the time? What's his name? So finally they come. And they get off the plane, and I'm greeting them at the Heathrow Airport, and I'm there in my arms. I'm saying, hi, honey, hi. Hi, Daddy, where's the giant? <laughs> so I asked, I finally, I go to Andre, and I say, Andre, I, I, my kids are besotted with you. The idea of a giant, can they come and, and, uh, and meet you? Of course, boss. <laughs> of course, boss. Carrie does a much better imitation, by the way, for those of you who will talk to him later. And so one day he was working and we weren't. I wasn't. So we brought the kids to the set, this, the scene where he's, uh, he's reviving Inigo. And uh, it was in the woods and he had a big trailer. And Andre's trailer was like the size of this table but maybe three times as wide because he couldn't get into the regular makeup trailer. He was seven feet, six inches tall, and he weighed like 500 pounds. He was, he was huge. His hands were, you know, like that. One hand. <laughs> and uh, I'm carrying one of the kids, and my uh, former wife's carrying another, and we're walking up the steps, and we walk up the steps, and we turn the corner, and Andre's down at the other end sitting at his makeup table, and I, I said, hi, Andre. And he got up. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of my daughters. And the two of them start screaming. So now they're both screaming at the same time, and they won't stop. So we take them away. So, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. So uh, we take them back to the car, and I go back to the trailer, and I said, Andre, I am so sorry. I'm so embarrassed that they reacted that way. And he said, 
It's okay, boss. Either they run to me or they run from me. And that was Andre's life. When you think about it, that was the life that he led, where people were either literally attracted to him like moths to a flame or were just terrified or made fun of him. You know, the reactions were polar opposites. And that's his, that was his entire life. And he was brilliant about it. He didn't resent it. He never talked about the fact that he was a sad person because he was what he was. He was, he was actually, a, you know, he, he was in pain a lot because of, you know, first of all, all those years of wrestling. And also the, the load on his musculoskeletal system from his size. And he was the gentlest, sweetest guy. Uh, didn't cross him. Talked to some of the wrestlers who worked with him. And if they, if they did the wrong thing, Andre was, well, watch out. Not, you know, physically, but just, you know, don't mess with him. On the one hand, but on the other hand, and he was, during the shoot, so comfortable because we didn't treat him any differently than anybody else. He was a member of the gang. We sat around, we talked, we drank. Andre drank. <laughs> um, uh, and never got drunk. Could drink prodigious amounts of alcohol, but never really got drunk. He'd pass out every once in a while. But uh, but a lovely, lovely human being. Yeah. Right here. <clears throat> that happens. <laughs> that happens a lot in the movies. For sometimes very serious scenes. I can't think of one in particular, but there were certainly scenes that we were doing, certainly in The Princess Bride, where, you know, we were cracking up and having a really hard time. I think it, it, Carrie tells a very funny story in the book about uh, the, the scene where they're trying to do the... the, the um, uh, uh, the, uh, where, where Indigo and Carrie, Carrie's almost dead, but he's giving them directions and his head keeps flopping back and forth. And I'll let Carrie tell the story because it's very funny. Any of your castmates in those movies particularly bad at cutting you up, uh, you know, making you lose it? No, no, not really. No, I have steely control. <laughs> Try it. Try to make me laugh. Don't tempt a vampire. Back there. Which movie? Oh. I try not to remember any of the scenes from that movie. <laughs> and I do a pretty good job. That was the one film that I made in my entire career and I've worked with some wonderful directors, I've worked with some terrible directors, where I regretted doing it, honestly. I mean, I don't mean to color it in any other way except that the director was a horrible human being. And, uh, and I almost quit acting after that movie. I, I literally left the country, went to Africa, and just drove around for three weeks. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, it, if it spoils your beautiful vision of the Sentinel, but uh, I, I, it's hard, I have a hard time talking about that one. Anything else? Fair game. Let me see. How many more questions do we have? We got one there. We got 
Okay. All right, we've got about five minutes. I think we can get through all four of you. Sound good? And just uh, to let you know, when we finish, we've got to we've got to race Chris out this way to get in a car and go around. You guys have been from the north building to the south building. You know what it's like. So we're going to have to, you know, make, make a bit of a sprint of it. Uh, so forgive us if, if we dash and ask you to keep your seats uh, while, we, uh, while we race out of here. Good? All right. So we got four Thank people. You. Who do we go to first? Who do we go to first? Right over here because I love your glasses. They're wonderful. All the rest. <laughs> Thank you for that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm trying to think of a of a of a, of a superlative, really, because she was so young, and at the same time so obviously talented. So spectacularly beautiful. And also, Robin has a mystery that is just indefinable to her. I, she st I think she still has it. When you watch her on screen, there's something there that you want to know more about, but you can't quite grasp it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think probably all the guys in the movie, and I was mar happily married at the time, probably all had a little crush on Robin uh, in a way. Uh, not requited uh, any shape or form, but, you know, a crush. And then we had two up here, right there. Hi. Boy, is he. He's retired. It's 40, 30, how many years later? Mike Norris is living on his pension in Palm Beach, Florida somewhere. <laughs> no. No, he'd probably stay as far away from Chucky as he could. Are you kidding? You have that knife through the seat? Are you kidding? Do you guys remember that scene? Where he goes for Mike's... Uh, <laughs> privates? <laughs> Thank you for the question, though. <laughs> and we had one last one right here. Ah. Those guys, first of all, uh, both Dulé and... Uh, uh, the, the reputation <clears> of, of the psych set is that it's just it's all kinds of fun, so much and, fun and people very yeah, laid back, yeah. you know. The, they were just terrific. Uh, couldn't have been nicer, fun to be with. We had a, a, a... It was really a fun shoot. You know, I mean, when you're a guest star on, on an episodic show, basically you go in and... Uh, James Rodin, James. yeah. Um, and, and you go in, and, and you are a stranger in a strange land. You know, you're not... These people have been working together, some of them, sometimes for years. They know each other really well. They know the directors really well. The crew knows everybody. And uh, either you are... You feel kind of... You remain an outsider, or the people in the show make you welcome. And they're the kind of people who made, made the guest stars welcome. Uh, so it was really fun. Yeah. 
Now, I have one last one uh, for you to wrap things oh, up. Oh, God, Moises. Oh, it's easy. I promise it's easy. So we, we've talked about these various fan-favorite movies that you've been a part of. Any of them that have really taken off with this kind of cult status that has especially surprised you, you know, possibly pleasantly surprised you, that you're, you're glad that people, uh, you know, got onto, that you're glad found an audience, or just, just in general that, that surprised you in terms of the huge amount of fandom that has, uh, has concentrated around it? I think probably the two that are most heartening in a way, I mean, Fright Night is in the sense that it, I, to me, it revitalized the genre in a way. And, and for that reason, plus it was a great shoot and I had a wonderful time and, and uh, you know, it was good for me in a lot of ways. But The Princess Bride, because I have so many people who come to me and say, I watch it with my family all the time. If I'm feeling low, I watch. Sorry. That beats a lot. <laughs> because, because we're so removed as actors from, from you guys and so that when we get a chance to interact with you it means a great deal and it means a great deal particularly if it, it, it has meant something in your life uh, and also Nightmare I get a lot of young people who come up and talk about what a difference it's made in their lives I'm sorry <laughs> No, don't be sorry. This is thank I mean, you. All of these people are in here in this room because you have given them exactly what they're giving you. Now, his friend Wallace Sean has a Q and A tomorrow at twelve fifteen. Carrie's Q and A is on Sunday. Thank you so much for keeping your seats for us so that we can get Chris out of here. You're here the rest of the weekend, right? Go see him at his table if you haven't. If it's the first time, if it's the fifth time, thank you, everybody. Come see me.